Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing on this fine fall day, Ben? I'm doing quite all right. Thank you, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm getting kind of excited uh, because the deadline for people to vote on the Patreon poll for what our bonus episode will be on this month is coming to a close and M is in the lead. By quite a sizable margin last I checked. Yes. So that will most likely be what this month's horror adjacent bonus episode is on. But you never know. Mm hmm. But that's in the future. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are headed back to America after a brief jaunt in Japan. And with a return to America comes a return to schlock (laughs) cinema. Uh, Today, we are watching Giant from the Unknown from 1958, directed by Richard E. Kunha. Kunha? I barely know (laughs) her. So this movie came about as the result of a partnership between three men, Arthur A. Jacobs, Mark Frederick, and Richard E. Kana. Of the three, Mark Frederick was the oldest. He was born in 1910 in New York. Jacobs and Kana were both born in 1922, with Kana being born in Honolulu in Hawaii. Oh. Um, they all served in the Army Air Corps, in World War II, which is where they met and became friends. Kana served in the training film and propaganda film divisions, as well as serving as an aerial photographer, whereas Jacobs was like a medevac pilot, essentially. Um, So he rescued wounded soldiers from the Battle of the Bulge and flew them to hospitals for treatment. After the war... Jacobs became a film salesman and kind of became a TV cinematographer. (laughs) Um, And then the three men went into business together, uh, forming a production company called Screencraft Enterprises uh, for the production of local TV commercials for the Los Angeles area. Um, So kind of would direct these commercials uh, with Jacobs and Frederick in a producing role, but they did eventually have ambitions for bigger and better things. Um, So they decided to create a feature film, uh, choosing the creature feature genre, as did many independent producers in the 1950s because of its like potentially high return on investment. Like everybody looks at, you know, a movie like I was a teenage werewolf where it's like, oh, they spent you know, 200 K on that. And they made $2 million kind of thing. Right. Everyone wants that. I do like the idea of them being like, yeah, we have like big hopes for the future. So let's make this movie about a giant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they raised $55,000 for the production of this movie. And the screenplay was written by Frank Hart Tossig and Ralph Brooke, both of whom were first time screenwriters. (laughs) So this is basically just like, you know, a bunch of guys in their 30s with, you know, a hope and a dream from making TV commercials coming together to make their first indie feature film. Yeah. 
the budget was so low that kind of served as the film's cinematographer and editor, in addition to his directing duties, uh, while Frederick and Jacobs produced. The film stars Ed Kemmer, a World War II fighter pilot who'd spent 11 months in a POW camp after being shot down over France, and who was best known as an actor at that time for his 1952-1956 stint as Buzz Corey on the children's space adventure show Space Patrol. <laughs> Our female lead is played by Sally Frazier, who was possessed by aliens back in It Conquered the World. Okay, I was going to ask who where this was coming from like was she someone who believed that she had been abducted but no this was a previous movie yeah in in the roger corman picture uh with bula yes um and the titular giant is played by former heavyweight boxer buddy bear so buddy bear was born in 1915 and stood six foot seven and he debuted as a boxer in 1934 and uh, he won a significant Jewish following due to his Jewish background, which he flaunted by wearing a Star of David on his trunks. Okay. By 1941, he had risen high enough to challenge Joe Lewis for the World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, Joe Lewis was an African-American boxer and had the longest reign as champion of any boxer in history, uh, 1934 to 1949. So this was in 1941 that he challenged Lewis, uh, and he lost due to a highly debated decision from the referee. Like, a lot of commentators think the referee kind of screwed him and that he probably should have won that match. Oh. But regardless, he lost, and then in a 1942 rematch, uh, he was, like, definitively defeated. Like, Joe Lewis beat the crap out of him. And so Bear decided to retire. <laughs> He served in the army in World War II, but after the war, he struggled to find ways to support himself and kind of bounced from business to business, idea to idea. Um, he turned to acting, appearing in roles that played off his size in films like Quo Vadis and Jack and the Beanstalk, and he passed away in 1986. The makeup for Buddy Bear's character is by a familiar artist who we haven't heard from in some time the legendary Jack Pierce. Yeah, what has he been up to since being dismissed at Universal? So that was back in 1946, so over 10 years ago. Uh, since then, he's been working as a freelancer, occasionally landing work for big projects like Joan of Arc in 1948, starring Ingrid Bergman, um, but mostly doing a lot of TV work. His return to special effects makeup came in late 1957 with the sci-fi thriller B-movie The Brain from Planet Arouse, starring John Agar. Arouse? Arouse. <laughs> yes. It's about okay. a giant brain from outer space that's come to conquer the world. Sure. I mean, I, I got that much. The special... Is it planning to conquer us by, like, arousing us? Because if so, sign me up. <laughs> Some of the special effects makeup in that movie includes um, possessed characters, like characters who have been possessed telepathically by the evil brain, um, having like silver eyes uh, done by like metal foil contact lenses of the same kind that would be later used on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, and the, that we also saw in that man with the x-ray eyes or whatever. Yes. And the brain itself is basically like a large balloon uh, designed to look like a giant brain with like eyes 
uh, that like lit up from the inside. Amazing. Uh, in addition to doing the special effects makeup for that film, Pierce also worked on the film it was released as a double feature with, which was the weird Western Teenage Monster, uh, which is about a teen in an old Western town in 1880, uh, which a meteor lands nearby and it mutates this teen into like a big, like kind of like caveman wolfman. Like, like he's hairy and he grunts kind of thing. Sure. Uh, the teen in this case is played by a 50 year old stunt man. <laughs> so lots of makeup work to be done for this guy. Right. Wow. Giant from the unknown was shot in six days back to back with the sci-fi adventure film. She demons, uh, which is about a Nazi scientist <laughs> on a deserted Island who is building an army of zombie women or something like that. Anyways, wow. <laughs> uh, she demons was also made by Kuna Jacobs and Frederick. Yeah. So these two films were picked up for distribution by poverty row distributor Aster pictures and released as a double feature premiering on January 3rd, 1958. And how much money did it make? Um, it must have done kind of all right. Today, it is considered a classic of schlock cinema and was the first of four genre pictures by the same team all released in 1958. So Giant from the Unknown, She Demons, Missile to the Moon, and Frankenstein's Daughter. So we'll probably be seeing Frankenstein's Daughter. Correct. Okay. Yes. All four of these films are available to stream on Tubi. And if you are like a physical media person, um, the home video company Film Detective recently put out like a 4K Blu-ray of Giant <laughs> from the Unknown, uh, which includes a commentary from an actor who was like a child actor in this movie who's still alive. <laughs> um, he plays a child role named Charlie Brown. Oh, no. In this movie. And when were the Schultz cartoons? Uh, the Peanuts comic strip started in 1952, I believe. Okay, so we're already infringing. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, hopefully he's not bald and in a striped shirt, you know, <laughs> like... Uh, well, this is very interesting. Hopefully, folks, you are able to watch along and experience this movie along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Giant from the Unknown from 1958, directed by Richard Kunna. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Giant from the Unknown from 1958, directed by Richard E. Kana. And I take exception to this title. For one thing, our giant is like the height of Buddy Bear, like six foot seven. And that's real tall. And that's, that's enough to like be called a giant when you're like a regular person. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in the context of a creature feature, when you say giant, 
I'm expecting like the amazing colossal man. I was thinking like the 50 foot woman. Right. On the one hand, I'm glad we didn't get that here, if only because it spared us from what would probably be some extremely bad special effects given the budget of this movie. But, you know, I think the title sets up an expectation that is not met. Although the dude is very big. No doubt about it. Yeah. Secondly, he is not from the unknown. He's from Spain. (laughs) We know that. He's a Spanish conquistador. It's well established. Uh, (laughs) This movie is so bad. You know, I didn't hate this. I think it's mildly better than similar films of this ilk and budget level. Um, the mountain town setting, which has a kind of like Twin Peaks vibe, um, isn't totally unique. Like we have seen it in other B movies like this, but it is a nice change of pace from like Bronson Canyon and deserts, which we get much, much more often. I had a hard time with this movie. Mm -hmm. It's not good. It's not good is the thing. And I began making jokes, which is always a terrible sign Mm. when I start to riff on what's going on. And of course, they're all like really bad jokes, too, because I'm not a comedian. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to write jokes. (laughs) I'm a podcaster. I just know how to ramble Mm -hmm. um, and hope that someone wants to listen to me wax poetic about Mm. horror movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So also a lot of these jokes that I would come up with were low hanging fruit, if not hanging directly into the gutter kind of jokes. I mean, towards the end of the movie, I was definitely riffing as well. But by that point, you had progressed from riffing to just sort of looking at the screen going. Yeah, just blowing raspberries. Listen, if we had played like a drinking game, it probably would have worked. Because then at least there would be some like lubricant for me to like to ease this down my gullet. I think that for a first feature film directed by a dude who made commercials in six days for 55 grand, this is not as bad as it could have been. You know, that's fair. We're all about context here. Yeah. Like there's like some competent shots in this movie and most of it's all shot on location, which gives it like a nice vibe. Well, like, let me tell people what it's about okay because this is leading more into discussion Mm, and mm, we're mm. not in that area ben Mm -hmm. we're not in that section yeah there's a program yeah yeah gotta stick to it okay so as ben kind of um not just teased like just straight up gave away we are set in pine ridge a small twin peaks-esque town in california and we are hearing that there have been attacks on like livestock, cattle, sheep, chickens, that sort of thing, near an area called Devil's Crag. I prefer Daniel Craig. <laughs> now, the sheriff and the townsfolk are like not really sure what's going on. The townsfolk think that there's something supernatural going on because of like the legend of the curse of the area, because we are near some native American burial grounds. Um, This curse is further kind of stoked as a theory because we have a um, character who goes by or it's called the name Indian Joe. 
Or Crazy Joe. Or Crazy Joe. In either case, I will just be calling him Joe. Mm. Um, because I know it's not necessarily this way in the States, but in Canada, the term Indian is considered offensive. Right. So I will just be calling him Joe. Part of the reason why he's like, it's the tribal curse, is because now a man has been murdered. A man by the name of Mr. Banks. Yeah, Old Man Banks. Old Man Banks. Now, um, Sheriff... Mr. Banks was my son. <laughs> we do get basically that line of dialogue of like, Mr. Brooks was my father. Yeah. You can call me Wayne is his name. Right. Because you know this script was really well thought out. Um, so Sheriff Parker here, he is super suspicious of um, local geologist Wayne Brooks for Banks's murder because they had been seen arguing. Um, now, Brooks is like, well, I've been up in the woods for like three days, so that's my alibi. But the sheriff is like, no, that seems really suspicious. Mm -hmm. Don't leave town. And just as Brooks is getting the finger wag from the sheriff, um, a Dr. Cleveland and his daughter Janet arrive in town. Um, Cleveland is here because he is an archaeologist and has a permit to go looking for Spanish conquistador relics because of his theory that when Spain settled in like the southern states and like into Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, there was this... Diablo Brigade, and they clarify the Devil's Brigade, who left like the main colonizing effort basically and traveled up to California. And this brigade was led by Diablo Giant, the Devil's Giant. The fact that he's he's <laughs> called the Diablo Giant like consistently, rather than the Devil's Giant. Although they do clarify that Diablo means devil, but he's not called the Devil's Giant. He's also not called el gigante diablo yeah like <laughs> like and they're also like i i'm kind of emphasizing they don't put any kind of like spanish pronunciation on no. diablo they're like the diablo giant mm -hmm. like yeah. fully americanized here mm -hmm. but anyways he's like yeah i think these guys came up to california and i'm just investigating this theory and hoping to find their relics um now brooks is pretty familiar with this area because he's a geologist and has been mapping and so he's like cool well i'll be your guide um so i can get close with janet <laughs> here is like we are the breeding couple i can share some relics that i found in the area um that have been near the native american burial site and kind of see what's kind of in the area that sort of thing and cleveland agrees wayne seems like pretty interested in cleveland's work but like real interested in janet and also cleveland's work so yeah but like <laughs> you know janet is a blonde girl in a movie in the 1950s so like she's good looking i do feel like part of his like immediate hey janet like want to go on a date want to go to the movies want to go to a restaurant is because um wayne is getting like chased around by this teen girl named ann brown who has a crush on him that i think he's probably like not super comfortable with and janet's like more his age ann brown and her brother charlie uh apparently live on their own because their parents died and i guess like ann's into wayne because well everyone else who lives here seems to be over the age of 50 <laughs> good grief 
So they first go to Brooks's Wayne, Wayne Brooks's lab, so he could show him the relics that he has found. And they also find this reptile that Brooks has in his lab. And they're like, wow, it, this iguana looks almost prehistoric. And he's like, that's because it is. You see, there are some rocks here that have properties that can suspend life. And this reptile had been caught in the rocks and kept in suspended animation until I found it and freed him. And that's why this lizard is alive in here. And they're like, huh. Okay, but these like arrowheads, though. (laughs) Like, this is the most interesting thing in the lab, right? Um, Listen, if Cleveland had been a paleontologist, he would have been all over that lizard. But he's an archaeologist, damn it. So who the (laughs) fuck cares? He's like, this belongs in a museum. (laughs) This arrowhead specifically. I don't care about this iguana. No. He is looking for relics literally for a museum. So yes. (laughs) So they head up to Devil's Crag. We see that Joe is hanging around and being like, a bit of a spy. He does like look like he's about to shoot Brooks, um, but he's like, no, I was, I was aiming at the rabbit. Um, but it's clear that like they have a little bit of a, a friendship, at least, um, mainly because Brooks isn't mean to Joe. <laughs> yeah, it basically comes down to like he's not an asshole to Native Americans and so like therefore is a good guy, which I mean fair. And a pin in that. Right. Um, So they are searching the mountaintops with this metal detector. Now, they do find relics of people who would have been in the Diablo Brigade, but they don't seem to find any sign of the giant himself um, until after a uh, big thunderstorm hits the mountain and we, the audience and the camera, see that the giant rises again as he had been kept in suspended animation with these rocks and now he's on the loose. The next morning, our expedition does find the giant's like armor, his medallion, but no sign of any bones. So they're like, huh, well, that's strange. They hang up the giant's armor alongside the other conquistador armor um, to like keep it safe from the elements. And Charlie Brown comes wandering into camp. Good grief. Good grief. Even though it's implied that this is like a hard to reach location. He's just like wandering around with a gun shooting rabbits, just like Joe was. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, what's this armor? Golly gee. Golly gee. And they're like, oh, um, well, that this is conquistador armor, but don't tell anyone because we want to preserve the site as long as possible. So let us publish our results first. And then, you know, you can tell people we just don't want like the whole townsfolk coming up here and mucking about with these relics. And he's like, jeepers, will do, Mr. Brooks. Gosh, I never thought of it that way. (laughs) Now, that night, the giant who again is on the loose, wandering around these mountains now, um, gives some spooks and scares to Janet as he steals his armor and his medallion and uh, goes wandering off into the forest. I mean, is he stealing it if it's his stuff? Listen, he left it in his, like, grave. Mm-hmm. So by all rights and purposes, he, he abandoned the property. mm So they've claimed it by right of salvage. Yes. I still argue that he has yet to do anything wrong. Uh, Well, uh, 
he is now. Um, so we see that Charlie leaves his sister Anne because uh, he has to go drive down to his job. She's like, don't worry, I can take care of myself. Moments later, <laughs> the giant shows up and murders her. Yeah, probably does a lot worse than murders her, too. He is a Spanish conquistador. And particularly, like, they talk in the exposition section of the movie, like, he was called the giant because he's like six foot seven. He was called the Diablo giant because even by conquistador standards, he was like a violent, psychopathic asshole. Yeah. Christopher Columbus is shaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like Hernan Cortez would look at this guy and be like, that's that's a bit much. Uh, Lope Aguirre would look at this guy and be like, you seem a little unhinged to me, my fellow. <laughs> Bit of a deep cut, I think, for some <laughs> folks. Um, okay, so he kills Anne. Now, left at the scene is his medallion. And um, next thing we know, Brooks gets arrested because Charlie had seen that medallion in Brooks's possession. So... Um, Sheriff Parker brings Brooks in, um, leaves him in the police car while he goes to see like why a mob is gathering outside his office in the town. And next thing we know, Mr. Giant has attacked and kidnapped Janet. So Dr. Cleveland manages to drive down to the town and get to the sheriff's car where Brooks is handcuffed inside. And he's like, the giant has Janet and Brooks is like, quick, get in. And they drive off in the sheriff's car, which causes the sheriff to unload his gun at this car driving away and tells his mob to quick, get the murderer. Yeah. Round him up, boys. And uh, now we get a little bit of a car chase here. It's like you've been arrested for murder. Don't flee. Yeah. And also, when fleeing, don't steal the sheriff's car. <laughs> like, even if you didn't commit the murder, you have now committed a few other crimes. Good grief. Um, so they managed to get Janet back. Um, the, um, the giant's like, oh, I haven't seen a blonde in 500 years. <laughs> Brooks and Cleveland drive back up the mountain to their campsite and he's like, Dr. Cleveland, you stay here and explain to the sheriff what's going on. I'll go rescue Janet. And next thing we know, the sheriff's like, oh, that makes total sense, Dr. Cleveland. We'll go help Brooks. They did choose not to show the scene where Cleveland has to explain things to the sheriff, which like, fair. Smart. <laughs> so like I said, they get Janet. It's fine. But now they have a hunting party and they are trying to narrow down where this conquistador is mm -hmm. in the woods. Um, oh, let me rewind a real quick bit mm -hmm. uh, and pull that pin out of Brooks isn't an asshole to Joe. So when Brooks is first arrested, they don't know what or who has killed Anne at this point. You know, Brooks is handcuffed and they're driving down the mountain. And Brooks is like, you know, Joe has been hanging around acting real suspicious. we should go say hi to him he's just over there and the sheriff's like we we saw the medallion we know it's you brooks and brooks is like yeah but come on sheriff joe's just right there i mean his his argument is that like the medallion and all the other conquistador stuff was stolen from their camp and that like joe's been hanging around 
but it does read very scapegoaty when there's like, you know, only one non-white person in this community. Mm-hmm. Who also, um, if it wasn't obvious, is played by a white person. Yes. yes. Yeah. Also, the idea of like, our stuff was stolen. Must have been the Native American. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. uh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they go to Joe's cabin and he is strung up on a meat hook hanging there presumably killed by the giant presumably but who knows maybe uh leatherface came by I don't know. <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we'll get to that <laughs> so they have a hunting party they are trying to figure out where this conquistador is in the wilderness um now charlie brown who remind you he is like a teen at the oldest so he is like, oh, gee, I want to help hunt down the dude. And Brooks is he like... He did kill my sister just a few hours ago, after all. And Brooks is like, no, Charlie Brown, you stay here and protect the camp. <laughs> Charlie Brown doesn't do that. Charlie Brown goes and grabs a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes after the conquistador. It's the Diablo giant, Charlie Brown. <laughs> for him they find yeah, him and he's, he's charlie brown <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't go well they find him and he's like near death lying on the ground and he's like he went that way towards the old mill i'll be go, fine i'll be fine go now or you'll lose him forever it's like he won't be fine charlie brown sorry <laughs> so they go well not they uh it's at this sweet point embrace of death charlie brown <laughs> So Brooks goes up to the mill. He confronts the giant. It's by a dam. They're fighting on the dam. The railing breaks and the giant tumbles into the water. And that's how they defeat him. Super easy, super whatever. And um, then he gets to like make out with Janet and uh, presumably off the hook with the sheriff for uh, Anne's murder and presumably Mr. Banks's murder, um, which like... You know, remember when, like, we said, like, this was, like, the inciting incident, um, except during the course of the movie, we see the giant rise. So who killed Mr. Banks and mutilated these animals? Yeah. Leatherface, does. clearly. <laughs> Leatherface is on the loose in the area. This is, like, the long-lost origin story for so, the Chainsaw Massacre. So, yeah, the movie clearly is under the impression that the giant killed old man banks and those farm animals. Like that's clearly the impression we're meant to have. And even like Brooks at some point in the movie sort of implies like, you know, when you, when you catch this giant, you'll have found your murderer sheriff kind of thing. Right. But yeah, as Sarah points out, the thing that awakens the giant out of his suspended animation is the storm that like loosens him from the rock with the lightning strike. Mm hmm. And when we see him get up out of the ground, he doesn't have his armor. He doesn't have his axe. He has to come back for all those things. And when he gets up, he doesn't think to, like, grab those things. He seems very, like, confused and in a daze. And Jack Pierce's makeup for him basically is like that he's caked in mud, right? Like, you know, he's been sleeping underground for in the dirt for yeah. 500 years. Right. So he doesn't really have the appearance of someone who's been like 
getting up repeatedly. This seems like the first time he has risen. Yeah. Right. When we see it. Ergo, he can't have committed all those crimes before the movie started. But the movie clearly thinks he is, you know? Yeah, like, it's, it's it's clear that, like, that's what they were intending. Because also when they head up to Devil's Craig, um, Brooks keeps saying, like, yeah, there, there was a really big thunderstorm. And that must be why, like, I see all these rocks pushed over and, like, trees pushed over. Like, some kind of big devilly giant <laughs> went through here. Yeah, it's, it's a continuity problem. Yeah. Right? It's not, like... It's not like set up for a sequel or a mystery left to be solved. Like the, the movie thinks everything is tied up. They've just made a really big continuity mistake because they wanted to have the dramatic scene of the monster awakening for the first time. But they also wanted to do the thing where we don't see the monster until it's like halfway through the movie and we just build up to it. And so they kind of, you know, back themselves into a corner and end up with this weird continuity mistake. And because this was these writers like first script um, and was probably dashed off the weekend before they started shooting. I believe from the time they decided they were going to make the movie to the time the movie was in theaters, 60 days had passed. Okay. So it's not like they did a ton of like editing and <laughs> rewrites, you know, no one would have caught this. You know, credit where credit's due, Dr. Cleveland, played by Morris Ingram, um, does a fairly good job. He's trying to be, like, personable. He's really trying to, like, be, like, a naturalistic kind of actor. He'll, like, kind of speak over people in a way where it's kind of like, you know, how Orson Welles tries to do. Yeah, and he has, like, ums and ahs in his lines. He really seems like a real person. I think it's mostly just his acting experience that's lending all this credibility mm -hmm. to his performance. But like, I really appreciated it because he seemed believable as like an old academic more than some of the more stereotypical portrayals we see in these movies. He doesn't come across as like the absent-minded professor, but he also doesn't come across as like my dear, I am wed to science and therefore must abandon all human ethics. Science is the be-all and end-all to be yeah. followed at all costs. Like, he, he even has a line of, like, you know, I'm not some mad archaeologist. Like, we can't seem to find anything. Let's call this off. Yeah. You know, he's pretty reasonable. We've seen Morris Ancrum in, like, minor scientist kind of roles or authority figure roles in a few movies before as well. Like, we've seen him in... Invaders from Mars, for sure, and, like, a few other movies mm -hmm. this decade. Now, Sally Frazier, as Janet, is terrible. Yes. Uh, she... And I don't know if it's, like, a mix of her acting or the writing, but it's it's just the worst combination. Yeah, she's very wooden, and she comes off basically as an airhead because of her delivery of dialogue, which is very, like, Oh, you men have all the fun. Yeah. Um, I'll stay here and clean up camp. But yeah, the script doesn't do her any favors because this is a script which definitely views women as servants, prizes, and victims and not much else. Yeah. I did like Bob Steele as the sheriff, um, <laughs> mainly because... Uh, so Ben pointed out that he has been in Western since like the 1910s or something. You 1920s. Said? Yeah. 1920s. Y you can believe it. <laughs> he behaves exactly like a Western sheriff just mm -hmm. doesn't 
put on like a Western accent. And I, it kind of made the movie a little bit like everything he's doing as a sheriff makes total sense. Like, yeah, be mad at Brooks for leaving town when you specifically asked him not to. Yeah, shoot at the cart. They're committing Grand Theft Auto of a <laughs> cop car. Yeah, he's set up to look like an asshole. Like the movie's POV on him is that he's a, a jerk. They even have characters comment on like, wow, he seems to really have it out for you, Brooks. And it's like, no, he... Brooks is a murder suspect. Yes. Brooks is like, that guy has a badge instead of a brain. And because we're supposed to be on Brooks's side, we're supposed to be like, yeah, but it's like, yeah, you, you left town. You're the prime suspect in a horrific murder that needs to be solved. Yeah. Um, and then you, yeah, like he arrested you because you're the prime suspect in a second murder. And then like you stole his cop car, like kind of right at the moment when he was being like, oh, maybe, maybe there is something to your story. Cause they had found Joe dead Threw that all out in the window. When you like run from the law and steal the car and stuff, like all of his actions are pretty reasonable from his point of view. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I thought, Ed Kemmer did a good job of injecting Wayne Brooks with some charisma and likability, even though I think on the page, this role is like another cardboard scientist hero who'd kind of be like a jackass if you weren't the audience and know that he's right. Yeah, I think um, it would have been very easy to have that character become an asshole, especially when like, we're sitting here and being like, the sheriff is right in this case, guys. Yeah, like we've we've seen a lot of cases of heroes in these kind of B-movies accidentally come off as assholes, you know, from our modern POV. And I think on the page, this is the same guy, but Ed Kemmer is like likable enough that mm -hmm. you don't hate him. He's so quick to throw Joe under the bus, though. Mm -hmm. um, it So it's like... Especially because, as I said... While it is somewhat reasonable to suspect Joe and the movie has been like setting him up by having him wander around suspiciously and look around. Yeah. But by the time he suggests Joe as a suspect to the sheriff, Brooks and Professor Cleveland have already discussed their theory that maybe the armor and everything had been stolen by the giant. And that's why they can't find him because maybe he was preserved in suspended animation, just like the lizard. Like they've already discussed that they haven't proven it yet. So because of that, it really does seem like Brooks is kind of being like, Oh, I need to get out of this, you know, arrest that I've been in so I can go look for Janet and find the giant. So I need to present like an alternate suspect, uh, uh, Joe, like it's very scapegoaty. Yeah. And I think the other thing with this movie, we don't see any blood. We don't see any gruesome details mm -hmm. except for Joe on the meat hook. Yeah. Like dialogue suggests that these murders are really gruesome. Like old man banks got like chopped to bits or like every bone in his body was broken. And like, it's implied that like, you know, Anne Brown suffered a pretty terrible fate, but you're right. Like the, the thing we see on camera is, is Joe on the meat hook. And it's just like putting out there that, Hey, the one person of color played by a white actor, uh, is the person who we get the most brutal death. The portrayal of crazy Indian Joe is, is definitely very unfortunate. Um, the actor, uh, Billy Dix plays him 
with that kind of stereotype Hollywood Indian accent, right? Like like that kind of like me the Tarzan, Eugene kind of talk. Yeah. And that would be like right at home in like a an old school Western. And except we're set in like contemporary times. Yeah. This is something that comes up a lot in old Hollywood movies, though, is like contemporary Native Americans being portrayed as still like not knowing how to speak English well and things like that, because none of these screenwriters have ever met a native American. Basically the other thing about it is that it's not even a quote unquote good portrayal of that stereotypical Indian in that, like the broken English is really inconsistent. His accent wanders all over the place. You know, like it's the, the wig is very bad. It's very bad. Um, I will say that the movie is sympathetic to the indigenous peoples of California, um, you know, in that like our shorthand to know that Brooks is a hero is that like he's not an asshole to Joe and that like, you know, he doesn't immediately judge the Native Americans and he respects their like burial practices and they don't go digging around, you know, their burial site. And there's definitely like a sympathy towards them with like the monstrosities committed to them by the conquistadors and things, but it's definitely like, it's definitely pity and sympathy for like a pathetic backwards people kind of attitude. Like it's not so much like, Oh, these people are equal to us and thus deserving of respect. It's more like, Oh, these poor people, they deserve our sympathy kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Ben, I think you're totally right. Um, they, they at least did (laughs) add that like hey these conquistadors were here to like colonize Mm, (laughs) they weren't here to just like hang out they were here to like rape and pillage yeah Um, when um brooks is talking to joe and trying to explain like what he's doing here when joe's like hey what are you doing on my people's land he's like well we're looking for the remains of this conquistador who came here to enslave your people yeah vargas is Did we ever mention that the Diablo giant's name is Vargas? No. Okay. His name is Vargas. But they just call him the giant. Right. So Vargas is definitely, he's my biggest. (laughs) He's a giant. Problem with this movie because he's the coolest thing about the movie. He's the premise of the movie. And there's so much interesting stuff about him that the movie just does nothing with. He doesn't speak. I was really hoping he would have some phrases in Spanish, like even if it was just like exclamations of like, Ay, caramba. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I was really hoping for that, but he doesn't speak. He's just kind of a big dumb brute. Mm -hmm. The makeup is cool. I do like the way that Jack Pierce did the makeup, both in the sense of like the caked on mud, but also you see some like scars on his face. Yeah. Yeah, The makeup was pretty good, um, especially for what this movie is. Yeah. And I thought the, um, like the props that mm-hmm. they find for the Spanish conquistadors were like, well done, like the armor and the helmets and the, like the rapier that they find and like the ax and stuff. Like they all look right for the period that they're supposed to be from. And they look convincingly like relics. Old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also do like that. We do get some wrestling moves, he does like this axe is pretty huge and he wields it one-handed and it's clearly like a two-handed axe like it's it's kind of dope he definitely Um, picks up a dude spins around and then tosses him yeah it's it's good but absolutely it was a little bit of a letdown that he doesn't speak he doesn't like 
really have much to do besides being a brute. He he's interesting because even if the movie doesn't really do anything with these implications or or explore them at all, he's a monster because he's a bad person, right? Like he's not a monster because he was reanimated like, and he's a zombie and needs brains or like Mm -hmm. whatever. Like he was a bad person beforehand. Like he was already a violent psychopath, right? He's just continuing to do what Vargas do. Right. There's absolutely like 100% a sexual subtext to his attacks on Anne Brown and Janet Cleveland more so than other monsters like you know, the creature from the black lagoon or like the Yeti. Um, because even though it's implied in those cases here, like this guy is a human. And as we said earlier, like a Spanish conquistador who even the other conquistadors thought was a son of a bitch. Yeah. So there's something interesting in that, that like this guy is just a person. He's a big, strong person, but he's just a person. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't really do anything with his point of view. Like he doesn't speak as you said, which is disappointing, but also there's like no real reaction on his part to things like an automobile, electric lights, revolvers, seeing a bunch of white people here. Oh, that too. Um, (laughs) their clothing at the very least. Everyone's speaking English, um, which he might recognize as the language of Spain's most hated rival. At the time, like, no wonder he's violent <laughs> against them. Like, he's here to claim this land for Spain, and he passes out from, like, an epidemic, and the next thing he knows, he wakes up, and there's a bunch of English people around here firing rifles at him. Like, fuck, I guess we're at war. He's a soldier, right? Like, <laughs> he's defending himself. Um, but this the, is one interpretation, <laughs> for sure. But the movie does nothing to really explore any of this as you said it basically just treats him the same way that this movie would treat like a yeti or a creature from the black lagoon or or any kind of big dumb brutish monster right yeah and i really feel like you know when you first told me this is about a giant spanish conquistador from ancient times come back to life Mm -hmm. i was like what the fuck is going to happen here and then we get this movie and it's like well He was in the ground and then lightning hit him and now he's alive again. And raping and pillaging, you know? As you do. (laughs) No. No, you do not, Ben. As you do if you're a conquistador. Um, (laughs) This is one of those movies that has plot lines that get set up that don't go anywhere because the movie takes a lot of time getting to the giant. Like the giant doesn't show up till halfway through. So they fill the first half of the movie with like a lot of, um, I'm going to, generously call this character development (laughs) um like there's this character drama right like there's this love triangle between wayne and janet and Anne, or like an implied one right like they set it up where like he turns Anne down for a date because oh i'm busy and then later takes janet on like the same date and charlie knows about it and so Anne finds out about it and it's like you know janet's like do you really love me are you just gonna like kiss me now and then go back to Anne when I leave and like things like this. And then that doesn't really go anywhere because the monster just straight up kills Anne and that's the end of that story. that's one way to remove the, uh, the third angle of, uh, the triangle. Right. Yeah. And also the movie itself is very like 
one shot move on you mm. know we yeah. got we only got six days i will say that the snowy climax at the mill has some parts that are cool um some of the camera work inside the mill during his fight with the giant is actually like really good there's some neat shots almost as if like having an indoor space to play with gave them a lot more like inspiration than just, you know, being out in the woods. Clearly what happened is that it started snowing while they were shooting. Cause they would have been shooting in like December, I guess. Um, and then they sort of worked it into the rest of the movie by putting in dialogue about how like they're going higher up in the mountain and Oh, look, it started snowing. And they add like some snow effects overlay to other shots before we get the like on location snow. Yeah. To help like intercut and stuff. Um, which I think is like, you know, you do what you have to, they didn't have to do that. Right. They They could have just like whatevered it. Yeah. I like that they were working with what they had and trying to integrate it in the whole. And the snowy climax does give it kind of like a unique visual at the end. Um, and I really liked it until the, <laughs> the special effects matting of the giant falling into the falls. That is really terrible. It's very bad. It's, it's very bad. Like, yeah, he's just blue screened onto the footage of the falls looking down. It's really bad, but also it's so anticlimactic because he's not defeated. Like, like he's defeated by a railing right which had no stake in the game like like (laughs) (laughs) thank you i mean so brooks is trying to like beat the giant back with literally like a big stick and that really sucks because the giant has like an axe that it he loses at some point and he's been like immune to gunfire because he's wearing like metal armor and no one can be smart enough to shoot at his face, it seems. And then suddenly Brooks starts whacking on again, like his chest, not his face with a big stick, which quite frankly, like if he's in that armor and he's shrugging off gunshots, he should not even feel that big stick. But anyways, he's, he's whacking him with the stick, but Brooks doesn't whack him off the side of the bridge. He just drives the giant back onto the bridge and then the giant like, turns as if to like you know turn around and run away and as he turns he kind of like leans up against the railing and it collapses under his weight and he falls and dies it's a very like well (laughs) that took care of that i guess yeah yeah so that really sucks but old man brooks's killer is still on the loose yeah so you know truly the climax is yet to occur (laughs) (laughs) let's get columbo up in here (laughs) i mean We've got the small town sheriff and we've got like the people from out of town and we've got like some damn fine coffee. Like we're going to we're going to Twin Peaks this up and find out who (laughs) killed old man Brooks. 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to ranking. So my impression of this movie was that it was on the low end of mediocre. So I went to look for mediocre. Well, the dividing line in the list between better than mediocre and worse than mediocre has always in my mind philosophically been the mummy (laughs) at number 133 now we've got 210 movies on the list these days which means that the actual like middle of the road is number 105 which is dr x 
And Dr. X is much better than this. Oh, absolutely. Um, the mummy is also better than this. So I started looking down from there mm-hmm. and I took a long, long, long trip down until I found Bride of the Monster at 151. I think that on a filmmaking craft level, Giant from the Unknown might be slightly more competent than Bride of the Monster because these guys had like experience making TV commercials. So they like know how to like set up a camera and like do shots and continuity and and things. But this movie doesn't have the um, enthusiasm for what it's doing that Bride of the Monster has. Like this movie is very paint by numbers run of the mill other than like the decision to make it about a Spanish conquistador. Like great idea. Didn't do anything with it. (laughs) Um, Can you imagine what Ed Wood would do with this? (laughs) He'd be like, Fuck it, so in an alien too. I mean, Tor Johnson would have played the conquistador is yeah, the thing. Yeah, that would have um, been great. So I think this is worse than Bride of the Monster. Beneath Bride of the Monster is Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, which sucks. Um, it's exactly the plot of Son of Dr. Jekyll, just with a girl. No, it's the plot of the Devil Bat's daughter. Yes, it is also the plot of the Devil's Bat's <laughs> daughter, but with Dr. Jekyll instead of the Devil Bat. It's not a good movie. It was really disappointing, especially because it was coming from like Edgar G. Ulmer. I think this might be better than Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, but I kept looking down to try and find something I could definitively say this was better than. And I found it at number 159, Man Beast, which sucks. <laughs> it it it, you it know, really does suck. It may not know whether it's central creature is man or beast, but I do know that it sucks. (laughs) So that's my range, 151 to 159. So I have a spot picked out and it's right in your range. Oh, cool. This will be easy. So I also was having a lot of trouble ranking this. Now, what drew me to this area, besides the fact that it's the low end of the list, is we watched this movie on Tubi. Mm -hmm. And Tubi likes to show us like, you liked this, you'll love to watch these movies. Tubi figured us out algorithmically far better, very quickly and far better than Netflix ever did. Although that might be because we've watched more varieties of things on Netflix. We only use Tubi to watch old 50s B movies. So Tubi's like, ah, I got your number. And some of the movies that it suggested for tonight after uh, Giant from the Unknown were Man Beast the she creature, etc. So mm-hmm. I, my eyes came down here. So I was like, if Tubi's algorithm is thinking this is about the same shit. Yeah, he's they're like these are apples to apples, so I'm going to go with it. Right. Um there's a couple movies in this area that kind of stand out to me as being like a little bit of outliers. Sure. Like they're down here cuz they're like bad movies or whatever, but there was something about them that I remember we really latched onto. The Beast with a Million Eyes at number 153. You really latched on to the idea of the thing that saves the day being love Mm -hmm. and the sincerity of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Even as much as like that movie wasn't super well made. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a mess. It it is a mess. And then at 156, we have La Momia Azteca, which is like a mummy movie from Mexico featuring Aztec mummies. And that's a really neat thing for them to do. I really applaud them for doing that and kind of adapting the universal mummy mythos that universal has done into their own kind of cultural product. Mm. So, um, I was like, okay, I think giant from the unknown 
doesn't do as much with its premise as those movies. Which put me at 157 with the she-creature, which TBS has suggested for us. And I'm like, hmm, on the one hand, they're both very imaginative mm-hmm. with their premise. Mm-hmm. The she-creature does more with it, mm-hmm. even as ridiculous as putting a blonde wig and tits on a Paul Blaisdell monster. They at least like lean into the premise. Mm -hmm. So my spot is to put this below the she creature and above the invisible ray. So slotting this in at the new 158. I think we should go one spot lower. Okay. The invisible ray isn't good. No. Um, and it kind of fumbles its own premise of like Bella Lugosi versus Boris Karloff. Yeah. And then like, Karloff is immediately dispatched and the rest of the movie is Lugosi dispatching other people with his death ray. Yeah. And like, it all comes down to like his weird evil mom at the end or whatever. Um, oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. She like, get like jumps out a window or something at the end of the movie. Um, it's been a, <laughs> listen, it's been a while. That was episode 58. Oh my God. Um, but on the other hand, this movie doesn't have Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. It doesn't even have Tor Johnson. So I'm sort of inclined to put this above Man Beast below Invisible Ray at the new number 159. Dope. Cool. Then entering the list at 159 out of 211 is Giant from the Unknown from 1958, directed by Richard E. Cunna. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest the ranking of Giant from the Unknown or any other movie we have covered on the show, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our rss feed and if you want to help the show out you can leave us a rating or review on the podcasting service that you listen to us on by telling a friend about the show or sharing the show on social media you help grow our audience and by heading over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and signing up to become a patron of the night you help us pay for our hosting fees as well as being able to take the time to produce these episodes each and every week you can join up for as little as a dollar a month, but patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content at patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are watching another American B-movie. I know nothing about it, and the title is The Bride and the Beast. Huh. Yeah. But it was Beauty and the Beast. Well, this is this is the next step, you see. Ah. You gotta get married. Sure. Yeah. The beast's name is Adam, by the way. Did you know that? Wait, like in the Disney movie? Uh, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.